morning, Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I am James Barty, Washington. Today is Wednesday, November 2nd, and here are some of the stories we are covering. Rwanda's president says his government is committed to peace and stability in eastern DRC. Rwanda remains committed to peace and stability efforts within agreed frameworks at both the regional and continental levels. An Ethiopian analyst says TPLF disarmament is the only way to achieve a cessation of hostilities. Kenya's museums and partners are conserving and promoting indigenous seas for farming. We will have a preview of next week's UN Climate Conference in Egypt. Today, Wednesday, is the International Day to End Impunity for Crimes Against Journalists. Media freedom and the safety of journalists are in dangerous decline around the world with negative consequences on human rights, democracy, public participation and trust in the integrity of information. And a Zimbabwe man turns plastic waste into useful items. Those stories and more are coming up on Daybreak Africa. Rwanda's president, Paul Kagame, says his government is committed to peace and stability efforts on both regional and continental levels. He made his comments while addressing the East African Legislative Assembly in Rwanda's capital, Kigali. Moses Javier Rimana reports. In a special sitting of the East African Legislative Assembly in Rwanda's capital, President Paul Kagame was invited to address the regional parliament where he expressed his country's policy for the region. Creating a bright future for today's young people means putting good governance and security at the center of everything we do. Rwanda remains committed to peace and stability efforts within agreed frameworks at both the regional and continental levels. President Paul Kagame's comments come as the Democratic Republic of Congo, which recently joined the East African community, has seen its relations with Rwanda deteriorate significantly. Earlier this week, Kinshasa expelled Kigali's ambassador to DRC, Vincent Karega. He denied accusations that Rwanda supports the M23 rebels. George Odong, a lawmaker from Uganda at the East African Legislative Assembly, reacts to President Paul Kagame's comments. There is concern about the escalation of um, the conflict between Rwanda and the Democratic Republic of Congo. But um, the president was very clear. He said uh, Rwanda is committed to the existing frameworks, regional and continental frameworks. Kennedy Mukulia is a lawmaker from South Sudan. If we are able to have a political will, and work honestly towards achieving a peace and security in the region. We believe the issue that happens, especially in the Democratic Republic of Congo, can easily be solved. As the fighting intensifies between DRC and the M23 rebels, the chairperson of the East African Community Heads of State Summit and Burundi's President Evaristin Daishimie said that a meeting of heads of defense forces of the East African community will soon be convened for a sustainable response to the DRC crisis. Paul Musamali is a lawmaker from Uganda. When we have a leader who appreciates uh, a challenge is facing, uh, that's a good beginning so far. Now that he, the president has a political will and he has rallied his government behind achieving a secure region, then it shows that he is going to work together with all those who are interested 
in ensuring a peaceful environment. The East African community early this year called for the deployment of the standby force to restore peace and stability in the region. A statement by the Kenyan Defense Forces says Kenyan troops are being deployed to DRC following the decision endorsed by the East African community heads of state summit. Moses Saviarimana, VOA Africa, Kigali. An Ethiopian analyst says an acceptable outcome of the week-long peace talks in South Africa is that the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, the TPLF, must disarm for there to be any cessation of hostilities. Masembet Asafa, assistant professor of law at the Addis Ababa University of School of Law, says the popular view in Ethiopia is that the TPLF as an armed group has undermined the country's collective security and integrity. This comes after Prime Minister Abi Ahmed said Tuesday that there has been heavy interference in the African Union-sponsored peace talks in South Africa. Press reports quote the Prime Minister as saying that Ethiopians can solve their own problems without international involvement. Professor Asefa tells me that the Prime Minister was simply expressing the popular sentiment of all Ethiopians. James, as you know, I mean, since the conflict in Ethiopia started with the Tigray People's Liberation Front and the federal government, the general public perception here is not only the prime minister see that external actors have not been helpful in resolving the conflict. And I think that general message is echoed today by the prime minister. I think he's uh, quite uh, right in saying that instead of, I think, finding a middle ground to resolve the crisis, what uh, most external actors in the conflict did was, you know, they emboldened the rebels and, you know, it also weakened the government's diplomatic position in the world. While I think everyone is desperately needing peaceful resolution of the conflict, when you see that very powerful actors involved in the conflict are not doing their level based to do that, it's quite regrettable. But, uh, Professor, I guess what the so-called foreign actors want is an end to the fighting and cessation of hostilities. Can we interpret those comments as the prime minister not willing to bring about ceasefire? I don't think it should be interpreted as a a lack of desire to end the conflict. I think Ethiopia has been significantly affected by this conflict. We have had a huge loss of life, destruction of property, huge amounts of internal displacement and social economic crisis and political and security crisis of a significant scale. That is, I think, evident in the, the Prime Minister and the people of Ethiopia in at large. I think there is a desire for uh, the conflict to end. There is no question about it. But I think what uh, the Prime Minister was referring to is that since the conflict started, I think there has been, uh, let's say, a very unwise diplomatic uh, pressure on Ethiopia. Of course, from the point of view of external actors, I think there is every interest that, you know, the conflict doesn't lead to civilian casualties and atrocities, and that has been also, I think, cautiously taken into consideration by the Ethiopian government. But we are talking about a rebel groups that ruled the country for 27 years under an ethnic federal system which racialized Ethiopian society and its socio-economic political power is controlled by very few elites. So when that political change took place in 2018, it was inevitable that the Ethiopian larger public had had enough of the Tigray People's Liberation Front. There was no way they could come back to power. So there has to be some finality 
the expectation from the peace settlement is that we don't compromise it will get security out of the desire to meet external actors' interests. So, Professor, another comment the Prime Minister uh, reportedly made is that uh, the TPLF should respect Ethiopia's constitution. What exactly do you think he's talking about? Well, I think it's very clear. You know, TPLF led a war of insurrection against the federal government, first of all, by attacking the major military base in Tigray, which was protecting the people in the territory of Ethiopia within the administrative region of Tigray. And that led to a very useless, I think, uh, and very devastating conflict for the past uh, two years, like I mentioned. And this has compromised Ethiopia's ability to project its uh, territorial integrity and sovereignty. So for me, one of the negotiated outcomes of the negotiation is there has to be any cessation of hostilities is that the larger public in Ethiopia expects that the TPL should disarm. This is a very dangerous group that has to be contained if Ethiopia has any future for peaceful settlement and development. Thank you so much, Professor, for taking your time to talk with us. Thank you, James. Masembet Asefa is the Assistant Professor of Law at the Addis Ababa University School of Law. You are speaking with us from Addis Ababa. More than 70 journalists have been killed this year across the world for fulfilling their role in society. According to the United Nations, most of the crimes go unsolved as many reporters are imprisoned, threatened, and their rights violated. And as the world marks the International Day to end impunity for crimes against journalists, the UN has asked governments and the international community to take the necessary steps to protect journalists. Marie Ojiambo reports. The United Nations says a free press is vital to a functioning democracy, exposing wrongdoing, navigating our complex world, and advancing the UN Sustainable Development Goals. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres says a surge in disinformation, online bullying and hate speech, particularly against women journalists, is contributing to the oppression of media workers around the world. Kenya is in the spotlight after the police recently killed a Pakistan journalist in exile, Ashrad Sharif. The police later said it was a case of mistaken identity. The incident has led to mixed reactions, journalists wanting more investigations on the matter. Victor Buire is the Director of Media Training and Development at the Media Council of Kenya. The space for freedom of expression and journalist safety has deteriorated globally for various reasons. We are seeing an increase in denial to access to information, an increase on especially online trolling and intimidation, and, and that is obviously a concern. So the successes do not look well, while the types and means of how journalists are intimidated and harassed have changed. Killings is not a major form of intimidation, but we see increasingly denial to access to information. The United Nations Plan of Action on the Safety of Journalists aims to create a safe and free environment for media workers. The resolution calls on all member states to take tangible steps to combat the culture of impunity in their countries. Buire says to some extent journalists are becoming a threat to themselves by failing to observe the professional code of ethics. So we see that uh, obviously the issue of statement bias, coverage bias and media bias which are global obviously challenges uh, that we have seen that sometimes uh, there is a forgetting the, the, the line and the people are sometimes overdoing for example political 
bias and once uh, they fail to adhere to professional ethics they expose themselves to safety issues because then they lack objectivity they lack sticking to the truth the president of kenya editors guild churchill odor says the recent killings of a pakistan journalist in kenya should be a concern for both kenyan journalists and journalists across the world it does raise serious concerns as to safety of journalists in kenya Kenya, when you consider what's happening elsewhere in Africa, when you consider what's happening in Somalia, in Ethiopia, and many other African states, has been seen as relatively safe for the practice of journalism. But we also know that Kenyan politics, uh, every time and again, presented risks for the Kenyan journalists. Irene Khan is the UN Special Rapporteur on the Promotion and Protection of the Right to Freedom of Opinion and Expression. She says that free and independent media are the key pillar of democracy globally. But the gap between the risks and threats faced by journalists today and what is being done, between the challenges and the actions, there remains an alarmingly wide gap. Media freedom and the safety of journalists are in dangerous decline around the world with negative consequences on human rights, democracy, public participation and trust in the integrity of information. UNESCO says silencing a journalist should not only be a concern of one individual or journalist unions, but it is also an issue that affects society, its present and future. Reporting for VOS Daybreak Africa, I am Moreno Giambo in Sacramento, California. listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I am James Barty in Washington. Today is Wednesday, the second day of November. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. federal judge has sentenced two Democratic Republic of Congo nationals to prison for their roles in the trafficking of wildlife products from the DRC to Seattle. A press release from the U.S. Department of Justice says Herdade Lukua, 34, was sentenced to 20 months in prison, while Jospin Mujangi, 32, was sentenced to 14 months. Both men had pleaded guilty to conspiracy and Lassie Act charges on July 13. The court determined that Lukua was the organizer of the trafficking operation involving more than five other conspirators, whose goal was to ship a cargo container full of elephant ivory, white rhinoceros horn, and pangolin scales to Seattle. Mujangi helped package the wildlife products and handled the financial details to process the repayment through a Chinese bank and then back to the DRC. The UN Climate Conference will be held in Egypt on November 6, at a time when the Horn of Africa is seeing record droughts and major emitters are failing to tackle the global challenge. Juma Majanga interviews the UN Environment Program Executive Director Inger Andersen as she prepares to host world leaders in Egypt. According to a recent report by the UN Environment Programme, the international community is still falling far short of the 2015 Paris Agreement goals with no credible pathway to keep the rise in global temperatures below the key threshold of 1.5 degrees Celsius. Carbon-cutting plans by governments 
are still inadequate and environmental leaders are asking developed countries to do more. In an exclusive interview with VOA, UN Environment Executive Director Inga Andersen said climate change is accelerating and efforts to tackle it must also be accelerated. 75% of all greenhouse gas emissions are from those 20 G20, the biggest 20 economies. They need to do more. And that is the conversation that we need to have at the COP in Shamashir, Africa's COP as we call it. They need to lean in, both with money, but also with their own emissions reductions. Africa contributes the least in global emissions, but experts say the continent is the most vulnerable to impacts of climate change. Tandile Chinyavanu is a climate and energy campaigner at Greenpeace Africa in South Africa. We've seen over the continent, um, there's just this past year, some devastating impacts um, in the Horn of Africa where um, the fourth failed rainy season is driving famine in the country and similarly in the semi-arid regions of, of Kenya. We're seeing um, people in Mauritania and Nigeria affected by floods um, where those floods have displaced something like 1.3 million people. And we've seen that in South Africa as well. The 27th session of the Conference of Parties to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change in Egypt provides an opportunity for the international community to continue negotiations for global goals that will tackle climate change. Muhtari Amiku Kano is the Africa Director for Policy and Government Relations at the Nature Conservancy in Nairobi. As the world gathers in Egypt, the expectation is that it will address the climate crisis, including investing in technological transfer, in capacity building, and in deploying adequate financial resources. Because without these three components, it will just be hot air and talk. Scientists say fighting climate change requires well-coordinated global action where everyone has a role to play. A lot of promises were made at last year's COP26 conference in Glasgow and discussions at the Sham el-Sheikh conference will be followed closely by many. Here again is Inga Anderson. We are seeing that renewable energy, solar, electric vehicles, energy-efficient buildings, smart infrastructure is becoming the thing. Let's accelerate that, right? Let's just move it right ahead. That's so obvious. Climate change leaders and activists are calling for more ambitious commitments from major emitters with clear roadmap for action. Juma Majanga, VOA Africa News Center, Nairobi, Kenya. Kenya's museums and partners are conserving and promoting indigenous seeds after the government lifted a ban on genetically modified organisms, or GMOs, for farming. The museum says the native seeds are at risk because of the GMO seeds, which the government and some farmers say will help them to produce more crops faster as the region suffers a historic drought. Victoria Amuga reports from Nairobi. Tens of exhibitors, a majority of them farmers keen on indigenous crop production, showcased varieties of native seeds at a recent indigenous seed and food culture fair at the National Museums of Kenya. Organizers say the fair was set up to promote homegrown seeds amid the growing popularization of genetically modified organisms or GMOs for products like maize. 
Patrick Maundu is a researcher at the museum. Maize is a step of food in Kenya. And uh, in Kenya we have traditional maize. What you've seen, yellow, indigo, all sorts of colors, black, sometimes blue. You still find it in traditional communities. On October 3rd, the government lifted a 10-year ban on GMOs. The state hopes to improve crop yields and food security in the wake of a drought that has threatened the nation's food security. Indigenous crop advocates say the move risks the extinction of native seeds in the future as a result of seed types mixing. Anne Maina, the coordinator for Biodiversity and Biosafety Association of Kenya, explains. Uh, when you look at the smallholder farmer in Kenya, they grow in small pieces of land. And uh, especially if you look at maize, there's cross-pollination that happens. Our farmers cannot afford to leave a buffer zone around their farm to avoid cross-pollination. Consequently, authorities are now encouraging farmers to conserve the native seeds. Samuel Deritu is among at least 200 farmers in the initiative. Deritu is safeguarding more than 500 varieties of native seeds on his farm. He believes the quality of food supersedes the quantity that the GMO foods present. Food security is just you have food. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't know how it has been grown. But when you talk of, of food sovereignty, it's a right for me to grow my quality food, what I want to grow. I save my own seeds, not being told this is the seed that you are going to grow. Some farmers say they are willing to abandon indigenous seeds for GMO varieties because they believe GMOs mature faster and produce a bigger crop yield, even with small land size. One such farmer, Simon Mamai, told VOA he believes in the research behind the technology. He says if GMO is going to improve our produce as intended as a farmer, I support it because we want a good harvest and in good time. In its declaration this month, Kenya's National Bureau of Standards approved the production of genetically modified maize, cassava, potato and cotton. At least seven other countries in Africa have approved commercial production of GMO crops, including Ethiopia, Malawi, Nigeria, and South Africa. Victoria Amunga for VOA News, Nairobi. Mounds of plastic waste in his hometown prompted one Zimbabwean man to build a shredder that helps turn the trash into useful items. He plans to move the project to the capital, Harare, where authorities have been struggling to deal with plastic waste dumped on the streets. Columbus Mavunga reports from Bulawayo. Troubled by the plastic waste in the streets of his city, Bulawayo, 34-year-old Klinsani Kalinglovo quit his lucrative construction business and is now using his backyard to recycle plastic into items used by school children. In five years' time, Mumtawa Recycling will probably be producing uh, sports equipment, um, uh, recycled uh, for, for educational purposes. Uh, you're mentioning your kids' counters, you're mentioning your, your book holders. And uh, we're looking at uh, sitting areas for, for school children, particularly outdoors. Glove collects plastics from his neighborhood and from schools near his home in Bulawayo and feeds it into a shredder. From there, the material is melted down and molded into items such as outdoor benches for school children. Glove's efforts are applauded by Adam Sakala, the parent of a Blauer student. This program is so helpful because it keeps the school clean. 
Yes, and also the school children, you know, since they always throw the buckles around, so by collecting these buckles, it, it clears all the dirt and the pollution also by the school. For years now, authorities in Zimbabwe have struggled to dispose of plastic. Kanyuson Dovo is the cleansing superintendent of the city of Bulawayo. He says his council is putting in place policies to encourage private companies and volunteers to go into the recycling business. Plastic waste is one of uh, the waste that is giving us serious problems as the city of Bulawayo because any, everywhere where you go, you will meet plastic waste in the streets of the CPD in the residential areas, all over the place there is plastic waste. The same is true for Zimbabwe's capital city of Harare, where Inusani Kalindlovo hopes to move and establish a recycling business there to fight plastic waste. And that's it for this Wednesday, November 2nd edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for coming on board with us this morning. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. I am James Barton, Washington, wishing you will have a wonderful day. Mm-hmm.